Okay, welcome Christian Israel, Pastor Eli James here, <clears throat> Voice of Christian Israel. Today is November 26, 2023, and uh, second di- dip into Star Wars Lesson 1 <clears throat> by, uh, excuse me, I'm still recovering from a, a bad cold that I caught uh, a couple days ago, but uh, Nord Davis Jr., the I believe I just put the uh, link into the chat room, Outpost of Freedom, Star Wars. Yes, there it is. And uh, extremely good material for those. uh, It's introductory material for anybody new to identity. Uh, I would uh, suggest anybody, if you want to introduce somebody to Christian identity, go to this website, outpostoffreedom.com, and print out Star Wars. It's, uh, It's a booklet that I received from Norb, Norb Davis when I was uh, a subscriber to his newsletter, so I have this in print copy. I doubt that any of his print uh, material is still available anywhere, but he pr- produced this newsletter for about 30 years, practically 30 years, and this is really one of his best items because it really explains the meaning of New Testament terms and uh, you know the covenant message that, it's exclusive to the descendants of Jacob Israel and no one else. And that any attempt to universalize the scriptures by any other means of theology is fake. It's just totally fake. So last week uh, we left off with the conversation that Nord Davis was having with two, I guess they were Seventh-day Adventists. They, they might have been uh, from another denomination. I don't think he actually explains what denomination they're from. And uh, I'll just back up uh, to a little before from where I, I left off. Anyway, can you imagine? <laughs> so these two young men thought they understood the Bible totally and uh, that Jesus came to save everybody. Well, <laughs> yeah, Nord Davis explains that that's not true. Uh, he only the only covenant he made was with the uh, house of Judah and house of Israel, quoting uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty one, and how Hebrew the book of Hebrews quotes and Paul quotes uh, Jeremiah thirty one thirty in various places in the scriptures. So it proves that he's not talking about everybody. He's only talking, he's quoting the Old Testament to prove that only Israel is the objective of the covenants, okay, including the new covenant, which is nothing more than the elimination of the Old Testament laws of sacrifice and replacement by the covenant written in our hearts. And that's it. Nothing else changed between Old and New Testament. And once you understand that, you realize it has to be with the same people. <laughs> it has to be this. Anyway, so he says, you know, can you imagine these young preachers uh, ha- having had to listen to his explanations? Can you imagine uh, these uh, confusion in these two young men's mind? They had believed that they were New Testament Christians. They had been taught and firmly believed that this meant that the law had been abandoned at the cross and that grace had supplanted it for the past 2,000 years. Now here comes Nord Davis Jr. teaching them that even the the law had not been abandoned. <laughs> okay, uh, the wonderful New Testament applied only to some long forgotten entities called the House of Israel and the House of Judah. And isn't that fantastic? Fantastically unbelievable that New Testament Christians know nothing about the House of Israel and the House of Judah. They just all they know about is Jews. And their bogus claim to being uh, the only remnant of uh, Israel and Judah. It never gets discussed in the churches that there, that the covenant was prophesied to be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All twelve tribes. Not just one impersonating tribe, one, one tribe impersonating Judah, namely the Jews. Uh, Jews are never even part of these covenants. To make matters worse, it now appeared that all the non-Israelite Gentiles seemed to have no part in the New Testament in the first place, and that's correct. As with the dog lady in the foreword, they could not steal, beg, wish, or wish their way into that exclusive status, even if they wanted to do so. The plain fact is that the New Testament was never made with the church at all. Never. Not even, uh, you know, not one iota. You can't replace Israel with some bogus organization called the church. 
And the Bible never says so. And it never says that the church replaced Israel. That's just a bogus theology from the churches. Instead, it was made with a very distinct racial and national entity with implications dealing with the matters of the law. Who and where is Jacob Israel in this day and age? So that is the question for today. Or let me go back to Galatians because this is all brought up by the uh, study we've been doing in the book of Galatians. And I want to quote uh, Galatians chapter 4, the first seven verses here, because you really, you really have to know what these words mean in the Greek to study the New Testament. And if you appreciate the fact that Paul is constantly quoting the Old Testament, and that the meanings of the Greek words have to jive with the meanings of the Hebrew words, I mean, that only makes sense, right? Red can't be green. Red can't, can't be red in Hebrew, but green <laughs> in Greek, right? Yeah, the, the meaning has to stay the same. And that, that's the only way to translate it. You have to have the same meanings from one version to the other. Now, I'm going to quote Galatians 4, 1 through 7. And what talks about sons and heirs. Now, it's very interesting that it talks about sons. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be a lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. So it's talking about the Israelites being heir apparent. Heir apparent. Well, if you're if you haven't come of age, you can't be entrusted with the kingdom. You can't be entrusted with the inheritance. You have to, you have to wait until you come of age. But it's under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the by the father. Okay, when is that? Well, it's the 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 sacrifice at the cross. That's when our our race, our people, came of age. Even so. We, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. Okay? doesn't say the elements of the law, elements of the world. Because the law is there to, to keep us healthy and to protect us against the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Alright? What law? The Mosaic law. And even before then, it was the law of nature that we were created by, by biology. And that we were made different. Our biology as Israelites is different from the biology of non-Israelites. Clearly. No doubt about that. Our biology is different from non-Israelites. So, anyway. So, this is, this is what the book of Galatians is about. Now, how did the, how did the book of Galatians get so distorted by the translators. Well, there's only one. It's by distortion by translation, <laughs> right? And uh, taking words that don't mean the same in the Greek and in the Hebrew, but they are maybe making subtle changes between the Greek and the Hebrew. So let me go back into my, uh, my concordance here. To redeem them that were under the law. This is Galatians 4, 5. To redeem them that were under the law. Okay. What does that mean? The redemption was given to those who were given the law or had been living under the law for how many centuries? 15, 15 centuries? Who else was under the law? Nobody but Israel. Only Israel was under the law. And then he says that we, because he was an Israelite of the tribe of Benjamin, he's talking about Israelites. Only Israel was given the law at Sinai and nobody else. No one else could possibly have been redeemed except those who were given the law at Sinai. Remember, the Israelites made a pledge that they and their offspring would obey Yahweh's laws. Okay. That we might receive the adoption of sons. Okay. What's now, Euthesia 
Even here, the word adoption is bad because it means the placing of sons, okay? So, heuothesia, it, it comes from the word huos, which means son. It means son. There's nothing adoptive about the Greek word uh, huos. It's a son, okay? So, you, you become a son not by adoption, but by placement. Paul is talking about now that you have been redeemed, you already were a son, you have yet to come to age, now you take the full redemption, you've become a full-fledged son. Nothing about adopting other races or species or anything else. This is sonship. That's what we're talking about. So the word adoption here is a total mistranslation of heuothesia. The, the first uh, definition given as strong is the placing as a son. And then they say that is adoption. No. No, it, it gives a church Greek definition here. Figuratively, Christian sonship. Oh, really? Christian sonship. So how does that replace Israel? <laughs> right? How does that replace Israel? It doesn't. This is church Greek, folks. This is what the churches have done to Paul's writings more than any other apostle. This is what they have done. So it's obvious he's saying here that to redeem them that were under the law, and that can only mean Israel, and there's no way you can adopt a non-Israelite who is never under the law. And because ye are sons, now it's plain language again, because ye are sons, and the word son here is huos, U-I-H-O-S. There's nothing about adoption here. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Well, who was assembled at Pentecost in 33 AD other than Israelites? Nobody. Only Israelites were assembled together at Pentecost. And this was just what? Five weeks, yeah, five weeks after the crucifixion. Nobody other than Israelites were assembled. Assembled. Nobody other than Israelites were redeemed. So if you know the history and if you know the meanings of the words, you can't be confused about whether we're teaching universalism, whether the Bible teaches universalism or not. But since the churches have done a masterful job of disguising the true meanings of these words, you get confused and you believe, as these two young students did, that the Bible was written for everybody. Verse 7, Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, that's Hewoth again, a son. Now wait a minute, it's actually, uh, I think it's just a difference between singular and plural. Huios. Okay. Okay, kinship, child. Full son, direct offspring. It means direct offspring is what it means. It can't mean figuratively an adoptive, an adoptee. It can't mean that. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And since the heirship only applies to Israelites, there is no other way to interpret this. But if you mess with the definition of huos and heothesia and, uh, and don't know what the redemption, uh, don't know what the redemption was all about and who was redeemed. Well, I can see you can get confused. So we got three words here, deliberately distorted by the translators to make, make it seem that Paul is a universalist. He's absolutely not a universalist, folks. This is a trans, transformation of scripture by deliberate deception. Deliberate deception. So, and now, getting back, to the document here to prove my point 100%. Let's see if we can figure out what's going on here. First of all, when did the New Testament contract go into effect? Some say that the New Testament began with St. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. Here's what Paul has to say 
on the matter. This is now Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 17. Quote, And for this cause he is a mediator of the New Testament. Who is the mediator? Yahshua, of course. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, who was who was violating the First Testament other than Israel? Nobody. They which are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance, but only if they're obedient. No, there is no guarantee of anything in Scripture. It all depends on us. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is no strength all the while the testator liveth. Again, that's Hebrews nine fifteen through 17. So, the, uh, the redemption was for Israel and for nobody else, and the New Testament doesn't change that anywhere, except with false translation, you know, making distinctions between Jews and Gentiles, when it should be between Judah and non-Israelites. He continues, So the New Testament went into effect at the very instant that Christ died on the cross. At that instant, Wherever the house of Israel and the house of Judah were located in the dispersion, they suddenly had the law written in their minds and their hearts. Again, nobody else, well, it wasn't quite that simple because we had to have the Feast of Pentecost happen as well because that's when they understood. A lot of them really did not understand what had happened yet. Peter and Paul made them understand what what happened in the book of Acts. So let me repeat this. They suddenly had the law written in their minds and hearts. Well, if they did then, they didn't realize. It had to be explained to them. At that moment, Almighty God became a God to them again, and they became his people again. Wherever the Jacob Israel people were located from that time on, Christianity began to grow. didn't grow wherever the Jews went. Why did this happen? It happened because God's law became an intrinsic part of their minds and hearts. Yes, they were sinners, but the difference is that they knew that they were doing wrong when they did it. Other peoples, as is clear around the world, do not seem to have this internal guiding gift of the law written in their inward parts. No, they just obey the outward law if they obey it at all. There is a school of incorrect theology which teaches that the blessings of the New Testament are now applied to the body of believers, which they call the church. Uh, As we have been discussing at other times, that it really is a big deal what you believe and what you believe in, who you believe and why you believe. belief, Belief in Jesus is not good enough. You have to have the faith of Messiah, not faith in Messiah, because it could you can't believe anything about Messiah and still have faith in Messiah. So it has to be the faith of Messiah, the faith of Israel, the faith of Yahweh. Prepositions make a big difference. Yet long after the church had been established, St. Paul in Hebrew still goes right back and proclaims the New Testament on the two houses of Jacob, Israel. The New Testament, as you will see as we look closer and closer at it, is a national and a racial blessing. The main thing to resolve is which people are the inheritors of that blessing. And that should be easy, folks, because Jeremiah 31 uh, proves it. And there's no change in the language of the New Testament unless you mess with the definitions and deliberately change the definitions. We must study for a long time trying to prove who Israel is in the world today. Why instead don't we find out who is driving the blue Chevy pickup truck? Does it make sense that whoever whoever inherited it should be driving it, right? (laughs) Does it make sense that whoever is driving the blue pickup is the party of the second part in the New Testament contract? Who is that? Who is it that through their activities down through the last 2,000 years seem to display that they have the laws of Almighty God written in their minds and hearts? 
Who is it that just happens to have the natural propensity and the intrinsic desire to know and do the ways of God? Who seem to have the bells ringing in their gene memories such that when the Christian gospel is preached, they just naturally respond to it? Or as Yahshua said to the scribes and Pharisees, Ye are not my sheep. My sheep know me and hear my voice and follow me, even though that voice has been distorted in modern times. If anybody who pretends to be Jesus, there's always a, a, a swarm of Christians following that guy, right? A lot of sheep can't tell who the, who the shepherd is. Let's be fruit inspectors for a moment. As you look around the world for a great Christian testimony, have we found it in the Chinese people? No, they have their heathen religions, mostly Eastern cults based on upon secular human. No, it's dragon worship. But it is not Christianity. How about the Negroes in Africa? No, their religion, even in the form of Christianity brought there by the Christian missionaries, has yet to produce a single Christian nation in all of Africa, or even a single Christian church. They always resort to their heathenism as soon as the missionary leaves. Even after a hundred years of trying by thousands of, of sincere people, well, thousands? A few sincere people? I think maybe he's referring to the missionaries and not to the blacks here. How about the most obvious people, those who like to call themselves Jews and Israel? Can't you see that for 2,000 years they have never shown that the law was written in their minds and hearts since the cross? Ever. If there is any one thing consistent with the Jewish people over the centuries, it is they have never accepted the Christian message, gospel, or way of life. They demonstrate no evidence at any time that God's laws being written in their hearts and minds. If not, now when? The Catholic Church has been trying to convert Jews to Catholicism for 2,000 years. How many converts have they made? Two or three, maybe? They were probably adoptees, not, not having G, Jewish DNA. To preach and teach that the Antichrist Jews are of the house of Judah or the house of Israel is to actually deny the intended effect of Christ's death on the cross. To believe that the Jews are descended from ancient Jacob Israel may be as wicked a philosophy as any around. For in that one teaching you are testifying that Jesus did not accomplish his mission when he went to the cross because the Jews have never had the law written on their inward parts as specifically established and set forth in the New Testament contract. By, in other words, the Bible just fails miserably. By this time, the young Bible students were completely baffled. They understood every point as I taught it to them. But if the church cannot be the Jacob-Israel entity of the New Covenant because the blessings are racial and national in substance, then the Jewish people cannot be Jacob-Israel because it is obvious that over the past 2,000 years that the law was never written in their minds and hearts pursuant to the New Testament contract. Then who are the Israel people in the world today? Of course, I am preaching to the choir here, but there's always newbies around, <laughs> right? Okay, there's always newbies around that need to hear it. And let and as I said, this uh, this entire booklet called Star Wars. We're just dealing with chapter one of his booklet called Star Wars, and uh, all of the great teachings contained herein. It needs to be read by every Christian, especially every white Christian. So it shows it's the book of the covenant. The Bible is a book of the covenants and not about any other factor, okay? And who the, who the covenants were made with and by whom they were made. So, let's continue. Again, and what people do you see driving the blue Chevy pickup? Who's the one, who are the people carrying their Bibles around? Who are the people claiming to worship Jesus? Certainly at the Jews. Who are the ones unknowingly are keeping the covenant contract imperfect as they do, <coughs> excuse me, but many of them faithfully keep it, try to keep it, sincerely, but failing miserably for the most part. Has there been and is there a race of people who seem to have the law written on their minds and hearts from the moment of the cross? 
What race of people do you find written about in Fox's Book of Martyrs? Do you see any Negro or Chinese people in those illustrations? No, they are all your forefathers of Europe being bound to the stake. Do any of those people appear to be of the Jewish race so far as you can tell? No, the Jews will run away if you threaten to do anything to them. No, no, the, the Jews are cowards. They will pretend to be a Christian and avoid get, get, being burnt at the stake. They will, they will deny their faith. Even if they're Jews, they will deny being Jews in order to avoid being bur- burnt at the stake. And then at night they'll go back and worship in the synagogue. No, all of them are Caucasians and they were being put to death for their Christian faith. Does it seem, after reading your copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs, that perhaps the Caucasian people might just be the people driving the blue Chevy pickup? Are they the very ones who have accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ by the millions over the years since our Savior died for us a couple of thousand years ago? I have in my library a very old book printed in 1680 by Reverend John H. Thompson titled A Cloud of Witnesses. A glance down the table of contents, I find the names of Allison, Bryce, Cochran, Finlay, Nesbitt, Potter, Smith, and Watt. What? What? No, no uh, Goldsteins? <laughs> no Epsteins? Not one name is Jewish, so far as I can tell. Not one has a Chinese or East Indian name. The last testimony of one James Robertson, who was executed in Edinburgh, Scotland on December 15, 1682, was 18 pages long. He had a lot to get off his chest before he died. It begins on page 240 with these precious and inspiring words. Okay, you can see that these people struggled with the so-called churches of their day. Which that, that that fact alone, the fact that the so-called churches dispute with one another constantly about what the Bible really means, is a problem. It just shows that the churches were not endowed with the covenants. Here are two witnesses. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry, I almost missed the quote. I thought it was going to be a longer quote. Dear friends. True lovers of Zion's righteous cause, farewell to all things in time, farewell holy scriptures, farewell prayer, meditation, faith, and hope, welcome Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, welcome praises forevermore, unquote. James Robertson. So, do you think he was concerned with the causes and problems of this earthly life? I don't think so. Here are two witnesses, a man who was executed for his faith in 1680, and the scholarly translators of the Icing Icing James Bible. What is this, Icing? Uh, It's got to be a misprint. It has to be the King James. Both telling us that it is among the Caucasian people that you are to look to find Zion, the people of the New Testament. Okay, there must have been a uh, another quote that I missed. Icing James Bible. There's something really wrong with that. Uh, it's got to be King James. Yeah, translated as a K. It's spelled I-C instead of K. Anyway, that, uh, that you are to find the Zion, the people of the New Testament, and the lost sheep of the house of Jacob Israel. These translators even stated that the King James was the hopeful seed, alluding to the seed of the scepter of Judah set forth in Genesis 49. No other people fit in such exact detail at every point. Those marks of Israel. Identification throughout the Bible. What other people have fulfilled and seem to be fulfilling every prophecy set forth in the Holy Writ? There are only three classifications of people ever taught to be Israel of God in Bible prophecy. One is the church. Oh, okay. Not by the Bible, but by the churches, by the interpreters of the Bible. One is the church. The second is the Jewish people. And the third are the Caucasian people. And you rarely hear the latter. 
who as a racial group have become Christians? <laughs> which, which of those three groups have become Christians? Who, who of those three except Yahshua Messiah? Of one brand or another in the hundreds of millions for two millennium. Who else has published all the Bibles, sent missionaries everywhere, and be, been the helping people to all who suffer famine and natural disasters? With precious few exceptions, that divine appointment that calling from the foundation of the world has fallen upon those of us of the Caucasian race. It clearly says we will be a blessing to the world. The Jews have never been any such thing. The Jacob Israel people, God's Caucasian race, do not hate anyone except those who are ordained to be God's enemies. There you go. The other seed line. We are God's servant people, those destined by God to be the helpers and healers of others, even those, to use the scriptural word, who are the dogs among us. For hundreds of years, since Oliver Holden wrote it, we have sung the coronation hymn. Ye chosen seed of Israel's race, ye ransomed from the fall, bring forth his royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. The Jews have never sung this hymn. What did the translators of the King James know, and the Martyrs for Christ know, and Oliver Holden of the Massachusetts Bay Colony know, that our ministers have taken from us? They never told us that the Gentiles are in fact the lost sheep of Israel, scattered across the world, generally north and west of Jerusalem, some 745 years before Christ, no, they were already there. They weren't scattered to those places. We were scattered to those places. We And the Jews followed us. The Jews weren't scattered by Yahweh. The Jews simply followed us because that's where the money was. That's where the prosperity was. That's where the pickings were good. We have never, and Las Vegas, where I saw the... <laughs> where I saw the the Christian sheeple being fleeced to the bone. We have never been told the glorious truth that instead of being racial outsiders struggling to be grafted in, we're actually those peculiar and stubborn sheep who eventually bear his voice, or hear his voice, and follow him. Isn't it exciting to know who you are and that while you were yet a sinner, God has called you into his marvelous light isn't it wonderful and humbling to finally know that you and your children are inheritors of the kingdom to come by both faith and race through the election of God? Okay, I, I choose, I put it this way, race and grace. If what has been written here is the truth, are you going to let anyone take it away from you? No. Then you are worthy to be included among those Christians found in Psalm 149 who have been given a major task to do before Christ to do before Christ is to return again. May the Lord grant you wisdom to understand his word. Okay, so, and there's a glossary of terms here. I'll, I'll just go through that. And uh, there are several uh, inserts here into the book that I haven't read. It's very good stuff. After this lesson, you will understand why Almighty God had his ministers give the following benediction. Most of you have heard it a thousand times. It is found in Numbers 6, 22 through 27. Quote, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto Aaron and unto his sons, saying, On this wise ye shall bless the children of Israel, saying unto them, Yahweh bless thee and keep thee. Yahweh make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. Yahweh lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. False preachers always stop with this verse. There is one more verse that they do not want you to think about. Stand up and demand that your preacher also bless the Christians with the last verse, quote, And they shall put my name upon the children of Israel, and I will bless them. That name, of course, is Yahweh, folks. It could also be Christian. Certainly, the name of Yahweh hasn't been put on the Jews. They reject the name of Yahweh, and they reject the name of Christian also. Just goes to show how uh, <laughs> how the, the scriptures are glossed over by the churches. Okay, 
So, glossary of several terms used in Star Wars Lesson 1. And again, this, uh, this document, even if you only print off Lesson 1, but you'd have to correct the typos. Icing is a really, really bad <laughs> typo for King. But let's go to the glossary of terms used in Star Wars Lessons 1. Sometimes, in listening to ministers on television, I come away with the impression that they suppose that Alexander the Great invented the Greek language for the benefit of Christians in later years. The Greek is a military language, and many of its idioms have military connotations. The first word that we need to examine is the New Testament word, word lost. Jesus said he had come not but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Do you think we ought to know what lost means in this and other verses? No, that can't be relevant. That can't be relevant. <laughs> what? Okay, yeah, seven, that's a good point. The reason they can't get these translations correct is because the translators did not know they were Israelites, but yet they wanted to be included. Yes. They wanted to be included. Had they known they were Israelites, would they bother to try to include other churches or the church? Well, they probably would have wanted to include the church they belonged to, right? Not really. Well, maybe those other churches were also Israelites. Well, they were. They were also. But prophecy had to be fulfilled. And Paul says in the latter days, the churches would abandon the faith which we have, no doubt about it. But this is really a good primer for newbies. Lost. One, where the salt has lost its savor, it is identical to the English word lost. However, in every other case, including the lost sheep, the Greek word is apolumi. It is Strong's word number 622. And as your preachers really know who have studied Greek, it means... Apo, put away, and lumi, in punishment or chastisement. So Jesus Christ said he came not to be unto the put away in punishment. <laughs> Wait a minute. Jesus Christ said he came to the ones who were put away in punishment. The put away in punishment sheep of house of Israel. Not those who were figuratively lost. That phrase has a national significance. Not a personal salvation understanding. There you go. That is a very different than supposing that the word means an unsaved individual. And even the word saved and salvation in scripture almost never means you're going to heaven. It only means you're going to be rescued from your current circumstances. Of the hundreds of times the word saved is used in scripture it almost never means going to heaven. That's another theological trick that the churches pull over your eyes. When you read your Bible and come upon the word lost, you are to substitute the phrase put away in punishment. Suddenly, the whole scripture will take on a startling new meaning. The Greek word lost never means unsaved in the meaning that is most commonly used today. Are the lights going on for you? Who was put away in punishment? Well, if you're if you're saved by mere belief, then uh, why do you even bother to uh, go to church anymore? You already believe. The second word I want you to address is the section is the word church. Christians suppose that this original Greek word meant some sort of assembly that is devoted to Christian worship. Actually, I don't think it's a Greek word at all. It's a pagan word, kirk. Kirk means circle. Preaching, praying, and prophesying. Wait, yeah, okay, so the, the word church is referring to the, uh, the Christian church is what they believe. Some think it means an assembly, ecclesia, to have a, a warm Christian fellowship, singing and praising God and so forth. If you will look up the word assembly in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, you will again find the national intent of the word translated church. According to Vine's church, a church 
is a body of citizens gathered to discuss the affairs of state. Okay. <laughs> is that what modern Christians do? No, they go to church to avoid discussing issues of the state. Talk about, it's, it's avoidance theology. Avoidance theology, crazy, is it not? Yeah, so yeah, the translators were also the steering committee, steering us away from the truth. That's the reality, folks. That is the reality. Okay, this is Vines. So, well, Ecclesia. The, the fact is, ladies and gentlemen, Paul set up Ecclesia, which they were called the elders. The elders of the community were the guiding members of that community. Don't you know that the word elder is preserved in the German alderman? Alderman, and we get that in America. What's an alderman? He's an elder of the assembly, not the church, right, of the state. An elders gathering together to discuss the affairs of state. Now, those could be religious affairs as well, but if your religion doesn't assist you in maneuvering through this evil world of politics and religion, then what good does your church do you? When Jesus said, I will build my church, he didn't use the word church. He was saying he would build an assembly that would be informed as to the affairs of state. That is the proper use of government. No, we don't need proper government. The Jews are here for that. The politicians are here for that. During one of his quote-unquote church meetings, one of the disciples asked, Lord, Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That's Acts one sixty one. Christ's answer was no, no way, a roundabout way. I contend that the question would never have been asked if the preaching and teaching in the assembly ecclesia had not been about the affairs of state, and certainly not about prophecy. So can there really be a separation between church and state? No, there never has been. Of course not. Now, of course, in our uh, constitution... The intent of, it doesn't even say separation of church and state. The Constitution doesn't say that. It says that the government should, should not interfere in matters of religion. That's what it says. The government shall not interfere in matters of religion. And that would have been a good thing if our government had stayed out of our affairs. Maybe our, our, our religion, our true religion, would not be so messed up today. There's no doubt about that. Of course, of course not, for the very idea of the affairs of state is built right into the word church. In early New England and throughout the American 17th century colonies, they did not improperly call their buildings with the steeple and the bell, oh, often used for worship churches, worship service churches. They were called meeting houses. And it was there that the affairs of state were openly discussed. Patrick Henry gave his stirring speech, Give me liberty or give me death, in such an assembly meeting in Richmond, Virginia. It was quite properly a church or a meeting house. Thus, a New Testament church can only mean an assembly of Jacob Israelites gathered to discuss the affairs of state. Uh, the problem is we've, we've given up discussing the affairs of state and turned it over to traitors and Jews. One of the gifts of the Spirit that all Christians are to have is the gift of government as set forth in 1 Corinthians 12.28. The proper word for the so-called churches today where the affairs of state are never discussed would be an assembly as set forth in James 2.2. The word is synagogue or synagogue in English. I never attended synagogues. Please do not invite me to go to one. The third word is Gentiles. I asked one of my students if he was a Jew. He told me that he was not, but rather he was a Gentile. Your preacher will tell you with a straight face, even though he has had a Greek and Latin, he has had Greek and Latin, that anyone who is not a Jew is a Gentile. 
How silly. There is no such thing as a singular Gentile in the Greek. Gentiles is from the Greek word ethnos. Look up the word Gentiles in your Strong's and from uh, Concordance, and you will see that it, it is Greek word for 1484. Hold your finger there and look up the word nations. You will find it also in Strong's Greek word 1484. So both Gentiles and nations are from the same word ethnos and mean exactly the same thing. Wherever you see the word nations, you may substitute quite freely the word Gentiles. Actually, just scratch the word Gentiles and throw it out. It just adds confusion. Wherever you see the word Gentiles, you should really insert the word nations. There you go. They mean one and the same thing in both the Greek and in the Hebrew, and Gentiles is one of the few words that the King James translators transliterated from the Latin. Since both Gentiles and nations mean collective a collective group and have no singular meaning, you cannot be a Gentile. You, as an individual, cannot be a Gentile any more than you can be a nation. The Greek language has not changed since 330 B.C. when it was invented. I refuse to let the ministers change it in their effort to invent a new humanist religion, which they likely like to call New Testament Christianity, with its missions to the Gentiles. What is being... Yeah. Nord Davis must be a descendant of Paul because he likes to run ahead, run on sentences that go on forever. What is being taught today as fundamental Christianity bears no resemblance to what was taught in America when the Pilgrims and the Scottish Covenanters came here and gave us a government based upon biblical principles and liberty and prosperity in America as the envy of the world. How can I answer the question, are you a New Testament Christian, a Gentile saved by grace? <laughs> Wait a minute. That, that question contradicts itself. And no one is saved merely by grace anyhow. And very few people are saved to go into the kingdom. <laughs> That's right. Can, can, you, can you see in this question how many errors are contained in the question? Well, there is no such thing as a New Testament Christian. Christians think that anybody can be a Christian, and you're not a Gentile. If you are a real Christian, then you're an Israelite, and you're not saved merely by grace. You get your reward by doing good works. Grace is just part of the equation. Now you know how to answer it. Well, maybe. Yeah, you might have to read this tract a few times to really grasp it all. If you have to open opened his eyes. Yeah, yeah, it takes a lot to open people's eyes. He told me that he had 20 years experience in the pulpit and never came across so much truth. Okay, oh, I, sorry, I missed a sentence here. One minister called me on the phone from the Midwest and told me that my early Star Wars pamphlets had truly opened his eyes. He told me he had 20 years experience in the pulpit and never came across so much truth. Truth, I told him, was a gift of God, which was ordained for him to understand just now. I asked him if he really had 20 years experience in the pulpit or just three months experience 80 times. He admitted I was probably correct. Yeah, because they repeat the same sermons over and over and over again. I had the experience as a Catholic, which has 52 sermons for 52 Sundays. And the same thing was true of the Lutheran church that I attended for, for many years. And they had the same situation. They just repeat the same sermon on Sunday 52 times. Now, it's a, of course, it's a different sermon every Sunday, but those same 52 sermons year after year after year with little variation. The fourth word is people as found in Hebrews 8.10 in the Great Contract. What do we know about this word people? Are they whosoever will? No, the New Testament contract specifically states that it is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah and not with the church or with some new group of non-Israelite people. Almighty God, through the pen of St. Paul, who was quoting Jeremiah 31, used the Greek word leos for people. He could have selected the Greek word aklos, meaning a crowd, throng, or multitude, he did not select the Greek word demos, meaning, or democracy, <laughs> meaning some common vulgar people. Oh, that's what we got today, folks. Common vulgar people, as spoken of in Acts 12.22. He did not select the Greek word thnos, meaning, must be ethnos, 
is it missing? A T-H-N-O-S. Not from, if that's the correct spelling. I'm not familiar with it. Meaning a common nation as in Romans 10.19. He did not use the Greek word for people, anthropos, meaning mankind in general as translated men, i.e. people of John 6.10. If salvation was for all men, the world, etc., any of these Greek words could have been used to make anyone a New Testament Christian. But Paul did not use any of these words here, but instead used the Greek word leos. Here's what the authoritative Vines has to say about this very specific Greek word leos. Quote, Leos is used of a people at large, especially a people assembled, a people of the same race and language. Just like ethnos means a people of the same race, tribe, or family, right? Okay. Is it time to rest my case on this matter of peoples and races? Well, not yet. We've still got about eight minutes left. So let me go back into the inserts where he gives quotations and definitions. But actually, let me look the word up here because there was T-H-N-O-S, which is probably ethnos, but maybe because there are some strange Greek words uh, not familiar with always. He, He cites Romans 10.19. So let me see if this is a typo or whether that's an actual word. Romans 10.19. If it's an actual word, it's totally obscure to me. Okay. Romans 10.19. I'm almost positive it's got to be ethnos, and it's a misprint. Okay, well, it's actually referring to Israel. But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. Yeah, well, it's it's, uh, ethnos. But that was simply a uh, prophecy from the Old Testament because he divorced Israel. And by a foolish nation, again, ethnos, I will anger you. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. Well, we've been angered by a lot of foolish nations in this day and age. So let me go back to the document and see what he's trying to say. Yeah, it's definitely ethnos. There's a typo there. Meaning common nation as in Romans. Well, ethnos means nation. But if you look up the word Ethnos in the Greek, it means a, a people of the same race, tribe, or family. It doesn't mean uh, multiple nations. Okay? So anyway, uh, it, it means a particular nation of the same race, tribe, or family. But here again is Vine's expository definition as in Laodicea. Okay, so when we see the word Laodicea, it's talking about Israelites. And that's the word... We see in the book of Revelation the various Laodicean tribes you know, in these end times. Okay, so, but there it's, it's used in a derogatory sense, meaning a people of no understanding. It's Israelites, but Israelites don't know who they are. Quote, Laos is used of a people at large, especially a people assembled, a people of the same race and language. Okay. So, Laos actually is the correct uh, pronunciation in the Greek. Laos is used of a people at large, a people of the same race and language. So, let's look at a couple of the inserts here with the time we have left. And if my uh, mouse will cooperate. Okay. So, 1 John 2, verses 22 through 24. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? Oh, as a Jew, he is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledges the Son hath the Father also. Let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. 
beginning of what? The beginning of this age, Genesis chapter 1. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain in you, ye also shall continue in the Son and in the Father. That is, in both. Well, the Jews reject the Son and the Father while pretending to accept him. And many Christians accept the Son but reject the Father. Well, what a horrible state of affairs. So, this is from the forward to the King James Bible to the Most High and Mighty Prince James by the Prince of God, blah, blah, blah. Great and manifold were the blessings, most dread sovereign, which Almighty God, the Father of all mercies, bestowed upon the people of England when first he sent your majesty's royal person to rule and reign over us. I wouldn't have been that kind. Anyway, for whereas it was the expectation of the many who wished not well to our Sion, so they referred to the kingdom as Sion, that upon the setting of that bright occidental star, Queen Elizabeth of most happy memory some thick and palpable clouds of darkness would so have overshadowed this land that men should have been in doubt which way they were to walk, and that it should hardly be known who was to direct the unsettled state, the appearance of your majesty as of the sun and his strength, instantly dispelled those supposed and surmised mists, and gave unto all that were affected exceeding cause of comfort. Well, I think that was premature. All this praise of King James is premature based upon the fact that these translators were hired by him, right? So they're going to say that. But the important passage here is that England and the kingdom under the rule of both Queen Elizabeth and King James is referred to as Zion. Zion. And it's not that funky little state called Israel. So it it proves, once again, that our language has been distorted, actually from the very beginning, thanks to the Roman Catholic Church, having introduced that ridiculous word Gentile and substituted Gentile for both the Greek and the Hebrew words. And it means no such thing. Goy means nation, and typically it's Israelite nations and not other nations. And this this is the, the... delusion that most of our people are under these days thinking that you know, the translations are the same as the original. No, they're not. The translations have been horribly distorted by, first of all, Juno who? Yeah, the steering committee. <laughs> who, gave, who gave them the right to drive the truck or the church, right? The church. The word Kirk is actually a, a, a pagan word meaning circle. That's where they went in a circle, right? They went out in the woods and worshipped in a circle. So, folks, thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. we got to get these things right. And these language studies by the Zion of Israel in these latter days may convert many that remain unconverted. That's our only hope. You know. Uh, thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.